Welcome to When One Thing Leads to Another, a podcast that takes you freewheeling down the great internet rabbit hole of trivia. Each week we pick a starting point and then who knows where all the twists, turns and tangents will take us. But we'll be sure to unearth a treasure trove of frivolous facts that will be as fascinating as they are, well, useless. When One Thing Leads to Another is produced and presented by us, Helen and Bill Rich. Our theme music is by Justin Mitchell. This is episode two, Die Hard. Right, your favourite film of all time... Die Hard, bitch. ...is, <laughs> as you so eloquently said, 1988's Die Hard. Bruce Willis, baby. Bruce Willis and Alan Rickman. Alan Rickman in his first movie role. Really? I'm, I'm uh, led to believe. Oh. Now, did you know that that film was actually based on a novel written in 1979? Nothing lasts forever. Oh, you, uh, you know this. Come on, it's my favourite film. Uh, and that was written by a bloke called Roder- Roderick Thorpe. Yeah. Now, did you know this? That book was the sequel to a 1966 novel called The Detective. Oh, he was, well, he was very slow at writing, wasn't he? And That's 13 years for the sequel to come out. Prolific is not not, not a word I mean, you'd not, use for Roderick Thorpe. I'm not judging. Anyway, that novel, The Detective, that was actually made into a film in 1968 and it starred none other than Frank Sinatra. I did not know that. Roderick Thorpe's number one bestseller, a literary guild selection. Now, an adult powerhouse on the screen. So I was reading that when Die Hard was greenlit 20 years later, yeah. uh, the studio, 20th Century Fox, felt obliged to offer the lead role to Frank Sinatra. What? He yeah. must have been pretty old. He Well, he was. It says here he was 73 years oh, yeah. old yeah. by then, so he politely well, turned down yes. the role. Good for him. That would have been really quite embarrassing and awkward had he <laughs> accepted the role and then we get to see him hobbling around Nagatomi yeah. Towers. He wouldn't have been able to shuffle his way through that. Oh, the air vent. The air vent. That would have been a terrible film and it probably would not have been my favourite film. No, and we wouldn't be talking about it uh, today, would we? Now, I also read, and I thought this was interesting, that originally Clint Eastwood had bought the film rights uh, for the novel. Oh. Clint was going to, yeah, cast himself as the lead, but nothing materialised, and so Bruce Willis was eventually offered the role. However, it was a role that was offered reluctantly by 20th Century Fox, because... Well, he wasn't he wasn't that famous then, was he, really? Well, well no, but more importantly, he wasn't uh, an action no. star. I mean, he really had only done Moonlighting, and he was Precisely. a comedy actor. Precisely, so... They were a bit reluctant about that. And in fact, they supposedly offered the role to uh, Sylvester Stallone and Arnie Schwarzenegger. They're too action. They declined it. And so uh, Bruno uh, eventually was given the role. Bruno? (laughs) Well, he had an album. He he released an album called The Return of Bruno. And he covered uh, Under the Boardwalk by The Temptations. Uh, No, The Drifters, I think. The Drifters. Is it The Drifters? Yeah. But uh, you certainly don't hear that on the radio anymore, do you? Probably for very good reason. No. Um, well, speaking of Moonlighting, I absolutely loved Moonlighting. It was one yes. of my favourite shows. Uh, it was just brilliant. And he was so good in it. He was a really good comedy actor. And I think I had a bit... He was probably one of my first crushes. Because he was just this 
you know, fast talking, wise cracking, wise guy. He was, he was brilliant. I loved him. And actually, did you know that he was still in Moonlighting at the same time that they were casting Die Hard? But Sybil Shepherd became pregnant, so the production company gave the cast and crew a few months off, which allowed Bruce to appear in Die Hard. Oh. So thanks, Sybil Shepherd, for getting knocked up. Yeah. He was allowed to go and film uh, Die Hard. I'll tell you an interesting thing that I have found out about Moonlighting. Go on. Was that it featured Orson Welles' final screen appearance. Wow. How about that? Because I've read that Moonlighting was one of the most, uh, at the time, was the most expensive TV series made. It cost oh, it cost millions really? of dollars. Yeah. Oh. And they did an episode called The Dream Sequence Always Rings Twice and they needed to shoot it in black and white. Yeah. Now, the studio were worried that the audience would, this would confuse them. So they thought they would... Uh, cool, they, not giving much credit they, to your audience. Yeah, there's nothing like... There's nothing like underestimating the uh, basic intelligence of the audience, is there? But Millions of people calling up their radio rental saying their TV's gone on the blink. It's, it's on the blink. It's, I, can only, I can't get colour. Um, so, yeah, they just blew a load of budget on getting Orson Welles to introduce that episode. Good evening. I'm Orson Welles. Tonight, broadcasting takes a giant leap backward. In this age of living colour and stereophonic sound, the television show Moonlighting is daring to be different and share with you a monochromatic, monophonic hour of entertainment. And he died one week after he recorded the scene. Wow, I don't know whether that's a lovely story or a slightly sad story. That after all the greatness he achieved, the last thing he did on film was moonlighting. You know, I mean, I love moonlighting, but it's not exactly in the same uh, league as no, uh, Citizen Kane. It's not quite the magnificent Ambersons, is it? <laughs> Well, you know, of course, Sybil Shepherd, she was in Taxi Driver, wasn't she, in 1976. And I've read on the internet that Bob De Niro asked Sybil Shepherd out during the filming, but oh. she declined, which led Ooh. to De Niro refusing to talk to her unless they shared a scene. Oh, that's awkward. Yeah. If there is any truth in this, by the way, because I don't know how we can yeah, possibly yeah, corroborate because he's famously very secretive, isn't he? Although yeah. she has written a, yeah, a, 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 an autobiography. So whether has she written that. about it? Well, I wonder if she was dubious of going out with him after filming the scenes where his character, Travis Bickle, takes her character out, doesn't he, Betsy, on a, and it's a bit of a disastrous oh, yeah, well, date. Take, she, well, she probably thought this is well, yeah. art imitating life. Oh, that is <laughs> such a horrible scene to watch because he takes her to the movies and he takes her to see a porn graphic yeah. film and, and they're watching essentially an orgy and she's sort of shuffling around in her seat uncomfortably and he and she storms out of the cinema and he can't quite work out what's wrong i yeah. mean that's how unhinged old uh, travis, travis bickle was in that film oh and um also another person who died um shortly after working with sybil shepherd noticing a theme here I don't know whether the police need to look into this. Um, but, you know, the soundtrack um, to um, Taxi Driver. Oh, yes. Well, it's a very haunting, yeah. sort of really, yeah, really unhinged. And, of course, that was Bernard Herrmann. Oh, yes. Who, um, was, who did, yeah, who did a lot the of the Hitchcock. Hitchcock films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and, and the Taxi Driver score was his last work. He died hours after the recording session. 
He managed so Sybil Shepherd has managed to nobble um, both Orson Welles and Bernard Herrmann. <laughs> Two cinematic giants. <laughs> I think maybe the, the feds need to maybe uh, <laughs> a knock on Sybil's door and just sort of maybe see if she's in any way responsible. Uh, of course, the most famous thing about Taxi Driver probably is the um, Are You Talking To Me scene, isn't it? Are you talking to me? I can't really do it. No, you could probably uh, do it, uh, evidently. Um, oh, rude. You're talking to me? Huh? You're talking to me? Well, I can't see anybody else. You sound like right. Yogi Bear. <laughs> <laughs> Robert De Niro blends seamlessly into Yogi it's a Bear. Mash-up. Yeah. Are you um, talking to me, boo boo? Yeah. <laughs> hey. Officer. Oh, no, that's I've got Wait, into Top Cat. Hey, Officer Dibble, you talking to me? You're talking to me? De Niro is absolutely brilliant in that role, isn't he? Because he, he, you watch that and you go, wow, he is properly unhinged. I but mean, I, I prefer him in Meet the Fuckers. <laughs> <laughs> you prefer his comedy role, so he really excels in comedy. He was, he was never any good in those uh, Scorsese-type <laughs> movies. But the um, legend has it that um, De Niro got his inspiration after him and Marty Scorsese went to see Bruce Springsteen, no oh, less, yeah. on his Born to Run tour. Yeah. And uh, there are two different variations. Mm. One is that when the fans are all screaming out to Bruce and, uh, you know, in their adulation, he would do this faux humble, are you you talking to me? Are you talking to me? Oh, right. Um, That's one version of the account. And the other is that... I could see him doing that. And then there's another one where he does, apparently in a song called Quarter to Three, um, he does a sort of talky, rappy bit. And in the live shows, and supposedly there are bootleg recordings of it, Mm. Um, he says, are you, t- are you talking to me? That has been claimed to have been Bob inspiration. De Niro's inspiration. Now, there's been a televised chat between Martin Scorsese and uh, the boss, and um, this subject was, in fact, raised. Mm. And Springsteen said, oh, well, I'm sure it's just an urban myth. And Scorsese said, well, actually, I think there may well be some truth in it. So talking about Robert De Niro, he is, of course, you know, a highly regarded and highly decorated actor, isn't he? I mean, he's in my top three of all yeah. time, I would have said. But I'll tell you the one thing that I think he is particularly good at. He's a very good swearer. He is a very good swearer. It's the accent, isn't it? And uh, one film where he does some top draw swearing is Raging Bull. Mm. You f- my wife. What? You f- my wife. So I delved into the world of um, Raging Bull and I found out that there are a total of 114 uses of the F-bomb. That's a lot. Which now In that, all its forms, as in, so not just... Yes, yeah, so I think uh, any derivatives are also included in that. Mother f- f- you. Yeah. F- so this prompted me to look up sweary films, and I discovered that actually Raging Bull is way down the list of the number of F-bombs dropped drop in oh. film. In fact, another De Niro film, Goodfellas... Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. ...which is proper sweary yeah. again. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Yeah, you should be sorry. Don't the F-bomb is dropped over twice as much with, with th- a total of 300 uses. Yeah, that's more like it. Goodfellas, I have found out, is 146 minutes long, which means there's an impressive two F-bombs yeah. per minute. Yeah, that, that doesn't surprise me. So anyway, I continued this, and in fact there's a rather useful list of most F-bombs dropped in a film league. And mm. number three Ooh, yeah. is yet another Scorsese film. Oh, yeah. Scorsese loves a bit of swearing and cussing in his films, doesn't he? And in number three is The Wolf of Wall Street. 
fucking Merrill Lynch, fuck them. Why should they be taking a lot of fucking money all the fucking time? That's number three. That's number three. Now, the Wolf of Wall Street. Now, if you thought 300 uses was a lot, try 569 F-bombs over the course of a three-hour oh, yeah. film. Yeah. It gives it a rate of 3.16 F-bombs per minute. That's pretty sweary. Oh, that is... Well, what's the um, sweariest film of all time? The sweariest film of all time, according to the internet, is a Canadian film, which is called Swearnet, the movie, which was released in 2014, and it contains 935 F-bombs over the course wow. of only a mere 112 minutes, giving it a rate of 8.35 F-bombs per Oh, well, that's... Minute. I mean, yeah, that's obviously the goal of the film, is to just cram in as many swears yeah. as they can. I mean, what on earth can they be talking about? Well, well, you can't get an, a, another word in edgeways. Are you kidding me? Nuts. You're fing serious right now? I don't right. give a fing if I'm on camera. Is this real? But that is a whole lot of swearing. Um, not, not the kind of film you want to sit down and watch with your parents. No, uh, no. anybody with a slightly nervous disposition with regard to cuss words is not going to exactly enjoy no. that one, are they, I would have no. thought. But just rewinding back to The Wolf of Wall Street, you might remember, as well as a lot of uh, swearing, there's a lot of cocaine snorting. There is, yeah. Yeah, and I read that they used crushed-up vitamin B tablets. Oh, so they to look like to, cocaine. To make that look like but that, cocaine. That, is that... Is that good for you, snorting it well, on your nose? Well, it's very interesting you should ask that because Jonah Hill, who plays the character Donny Azoff, claimed that he snorted so much vitamin B he had to be hospitalised with bronchitis. Yeah, that um, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. That uh, can't be good, can it? Sniffing well, something up your well, nose. Well, vitamin B is obviously very good for you, but this proves you quite can... convincingly that you can have too much of a good thing. I um, read that Jonah Hill took an enormous pay cut to be in that film because he just wanted to work with uh, Martin Scorsese. Apparently, he was paid minimum wage allowed by the Screen Actors Guild, which added up to sixty thousand dollars. Oh wow! 000. Oh, that's not that's, oh, nothing. that's, that's nothing compared yeah. to what uh, what did old Leonardo? Ah, well, he make. was a little bit more. Go on, ten million. <laughs> 10 yeah. million US. Yeah. Well, I would have, if I was Jonah Hill, I'd sort of, wouldn't you feel a little bit sort of... Well, uh, but I mean, he doesn't, he obviously doesn't need the money, does he? And... Well, was, you, well I don't suppose Leonardo needs the money. You'd think he could slip him a mil, couldn't you? Say, look, yeah, look, I'll tell you what, have a mil of mine. I think, I think he was obviously just happy, uh, happy to be working on that film he, with his hero. Yeah. He's actually very good as a serious actor. Yeah, I enjoyed him in that thing on Netflix that was called Maniac. Do you remember with Emma Stone? He was very good in that, was I he? thought. Yeah. yeah. I probably have watched it and have since yeah. forgotten it because yeah. I can't recall anything I've no. watched within about 10 minutes of watching it, unfortunately. Yeah. I saw that vitamin B you snort. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to When One Thing Leads to Another, a podcast produced and presented by us, Helen and Bill Rich. If we have floated your boat or pushed your buttons, then subscribe by visiting our website whenonethingleadstoanother.com. We've also added some links to things that we've discovered on this episode, so you too can lose yourself down the great internet rabbit hole of discovery. A massive thank you to Justin Mitchell for letting us use his music as our theme song. It's a track called Homo Erectus, taken from his fantastical album called The Garden of Earthly Delights, 
which is available to buy from bandcamp.com. Thanks also to Acast for hosting our podcast. Join us next week for another episode of When One Thing Leads to Another. Please note that all facts have been found on the internet and therefore we cannot vouch for their veracity.